You know, as I look back on my 46 years of life, there's some things that I really enjoyed, uh, you know, at different times in my life that I don't quite enjoy so much anymore. For example, I used to love Country Time Lemonade in the can. I remember uh, as a kid, even working sometimes, we helped, my, my brothers and I would help uh, keep the, the grounds and the grass cut at uh, a church in Morrow, Georgia. And when it was really hot, I, I just remember thinking, if I can just get through this part of the grass, then in a little bit I'll go to the vending machine and I can put some money in and out will come a cold country time lemonade in a can. And for many years, that was kind of, that was my thing. So Country Time Lemonade was a favorite Chick-fil-A lemonade. I still enjoy it, but I can't drink it as much. It's just my teeth are, are not as strong, I guess. Uh, Mountain Dew was a favorite of mine. I drank a lot of Mountain Dew. Coca-Cola, I had Coca-Cola collection. I would drink, you know, a lot of Coke. Twizzlers, anybody like Twizzlers? The licorice? So it would be interesting to know, in and in for a time of my life, how many strips of Twizzlers I consumed. It was way too many, for sure. But I think I ate so many of those and drank so much you know, lemonade and Coke that eventually I, I just I couldn't eat or drink that much anymore. And I, I, don't, I can't remember the last time I had a Country Time Lemonade or a Mountain Dew. Um, Twizzlers really aren't my, my thing anymore. So I haven't remained strong in that, I guess you would say. You say, well, that's, that, that doesn't really make a big deal. Uh, but there's some other goals in my life that I, at one time I, I served and I, and I sought after with great passion. I remember when I was about 10 years old, Spud Webb, anybody recognize that name? Spud Webb played for the Atlanta Hawks, 1986, 10, I was a, as a 10-year-old, Spud Webb at a whopping 5.7 or 5 foot, foot 7 inches tall, so that's not very tall, no it's not, but 5 foot 7, Spud Webb won the slam dunk contest in 1986. And so as a 10-year-old, I had just begun playing intramural basketball for our small Christian school there. And I thought, I'm going to go to the NBA just like Spud Webb because surely I'll be taller than 5'7". And so for a while, I, I seriously convinced myself that I would be able to go to the NBA. Now, has that happened, those of you who know me? Absolutely not. Have I ever slam dunked a ball? No. Have I even really touched the rim without somebody, you know, lowering the rim, lowering the coal or helping me up? No, I could get the net, but I could never even touch the rim on my own at 5'9". I couldn't do it. But for a while, I convinced myself, no, if I really put my mind to it, that I can do this. And it's interesting, as I rewatched that slam dunk contest this week, and I heard one of the commentators say that was, that was at the event, and he said this, this is so exciting to see this happen because this gives hope to all the little men who play basketball around the country. Well, I was one of those little men who got hope to think, this could be me one day. But eventually... That kind of waned away, and I did enjoy basketball, but eventually reality set in that, David, you're not going to make it to the NBA and probably won't even play college ball, and I didn't. But what about the other dreams? I thought about the military, and I, I had posters all over my room, and I had camos, and I had the dog tags, and I'd go to school, you know, in the camos, and I had the idea that, no, now I'm going to be in the military. Uh, but as some of you have heard me say in the past, when uh, a surplus store guy, a veteran said, do you like to be cold? No. Do you like to be wet? Well, not really. Do you like to be tired? Not a whole lot. He said, well, you should never join the military. So, okay, well, there, there goes that dream. And then I thought, well, what about a scientist? I enjoy dissecting things, you know, in my, my seventh and eighth grade, you know, biology classes. This is fun. I can dissect and I could be a scientist. 
So many of these goals have kind of passed away into God's sovereignty. It's a good thing they did because he showed me, you know, along the way that that wasn't his path for me. It is for many, but those weren't God's path for me. And he, he closed those doors. But just as my goals have changed and sometimes I would pursue with great passion and dedication and hope that things would happen, sometimes as believers, we, we get on fire for the Lord and we're serving him faithfully and then life happens, and then things get busy, and we get frustrated, or we get disappointed, or we wonder why God isn't blessing in this way or that, and we fail to stand strong anymore. Look with me in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1. Philippians 4 and verse 1. This is a, a, a key part of the passage. We've built up to this, and uh, looked all the way through the end of chapter 3, straining toward the goal, as Paul, Paul said. And then he becomes to chapter 4, and he says, Therefore, my brothers, so having thought about all of this in the past, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So he's saying, you know, stand firm as I've already told you, but he's also going to go through in the, the rest of chapter 4 and give us more specific ways to stand firm. Why is it important? Why did Paul understand by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, why did Paul know, I need to challenge the Philippians to stand strong? Because God knows us as humans that our tendency is often not to stand strong. It's not to remain faithful. First Corinthians, well, actually Barnabas, right after the Gentiles, the first group of Gentile believers, Barnabas and Paul went back. You know what Barnabas' first message was to the Gentile believers? We see it in Acts 11.33, and Paul's first message was, listen, stand strong in the purpose, with steadfast purpose that God has called you to. He didn't right away say, okay, let me teach you the, the intricacies of, you know, of this doctrine or that doctrine. He knew very well, listen, just like the Jews, Jewish believers, the Gentile believers are going to be tempted to not stand strong, and I want to encourage them in that way. The Corinthian church was a problematic church, right? It had a tendency to celebrate sin rather than to confront sin. But Paul um, challenged them. The this, this same church also had a tendency to see Christianity as a, as a competition. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. And Paul says, no, it, one waters and one plants a seed and one waters, but it's God that gives the increase. And 1 Corinthians 3, 9 says, we're all laborers together with God. So he, he's challenging them. This is not a competition. This is a cause that we should all unify around and, and, ple- and serve God together. But at the end of 1 Corinthians, after he's addressed so many problems, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he comes to the very end and he says this, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because he had just addressed a group of believers that at times were very carnal. And he said, I can't give you the meat of the word. I have to give you the milk. And uh, you're, you're suing each other. You know, we think the United States is a litigious society. Well, the Corinthian church, the believers wanted to sue each other. Paul says this shouldn't be. He says, be steadfast and movable. Throughout Philippians, Paul uses, and we've already seen the phrases like, this one thing I do, or in Philippians chapter 2, have this mind, which is the mind of Christ. In contrast, James warns against the double-minded man. So whereas Paul says, have this one mind, you know, do this one thing, James says, that's exactly right. You should not be a double-minded 
believer. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, Peter in the last few verses of that letter says, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. The next to last book, Jude, before we get to Revelation, after Jude has talked about false prophets, he's talked about corruption that is, that is to come, he's talked about scoffers, uh, those who follow their, their ungodly passions, those who are void of the Holy Spirit. But, and in this context, Jude then says, keep yourselves, stand firm, stand strong in the love of God, Jude 21. So the question is, why should you stand strong? Well, notice, because, we, uh, because of Christ's position, he is king. Because of Christ's position, he is our king. That is a huge reason why we should stand strong. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, going back and reviewing a little bit. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to borrow a little bit out of Ephesians and go to another letter that uh, Paul wrote to the Ephesian church to see what does this exactly mean then? What are some, uh, some, some takeaways because Christ is our king that we should live and how to stand strong? Look with me in Ephesians chapter 1. It will be on the screen as well. Ephesians 1, 15 through 22. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, I believe this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, and of revelation in the knowledge of him. First of all, as because Christ is our king, he's given us the Holy Spirit to help us understand his very mind. He's helped to, to help us understand the mind of Christ and how to please him and how to discern what is right and what is wrong. That's a huge benefit, huge blessing that we have falling on. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now this past year... For some who had a lot of money in mutual funds and retirement funds and things like that, um, it was not a great year for, for most uh, with their, their performance of their mutual funds or stocks. A lot of the stocks lost money. We've, there's been a little bit of rebound at the beginning of this year, but there was a lot of money lost. And so as people think about, okay, what, is, you know, what about my retirement or what about the inheritance? You know, well, there, there can be a lot of loss in that and inflation can eat away and government changes, political changes can really ravage savings, especially in other countries around the world where it, it can tip so quickly uh, the political balance and all of that. But nothing can touch the spiritual inheritance that we have because Christ is our king. It says that it's... it's immeasurable it's there it's not going to change so it says what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and then it goes on what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of what of his great might that he worked in christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places so the power that was shown in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because Christ is king, we have access to that power. Not to use for our selfish you know, endeavors and not to use you know, selfishly, but that is the power that we know as believers, as those who are followers of Christ and in Christ in his kingdom. Now follow on. 
far above all, so that reminds us of his position, far above all, rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So because of Christ's position, I can know, yes, I can stand strong because he is our king. But secondly, because of Christ's promise, he's coming back. And again, as we look back to the latter part of chapter 3 of Philippians chapter 3, look in verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That is a, is a great and encouraging promise that in our lowly body, as we face sinful temptations, as we face trials, sometimes that just come to living in a, in a fallen world and in a fallen body. But to know that Jesus Christ has promised, there will be a day that I will transform your lowly body into a glorious body like mine. Amen? That's exciting. That is a huge encouragement to me. That helps me in the low days and in the dark nights to go, no, but there's a promise that a better day is coming. And so that helps me to stand strong for him. We see in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now why? Why why does he say, let not your hearts be troubled? Well, he's about to give a promise. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Man. Amen. We see that in Titus, the, uh, uh, the hope of eternal life of God who cannot lie And Jesus has promised here in John chapter 14, don't be troubled. Don't get bogged down on all of the problems today. Think about the promise that I'm giving you. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back. You can stand sure on that. As some might say, you can take it to the bank. This is a promise that you can stand firm in Jesus Christ will happen. But we see also because of Christ's promise, or presence rather, because of Christ's presence, he is near. He is near. Because of Christ's presence. Notice with me in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. In a couple Sundays, um, we're going to look more specifically at the first part of that passage. As we continue verse by verse through chapter 4 of Philippians. And we're going to look at, okay, what does this mean? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. But I want to draw your attention to the last part of that verse. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. You know, um, think back with me on, on when Jesus Christ was crucified. Not long before Christ was crucified, who showed, who showed great boldness and cut off a man's ear and, and, and almost seemed like that nothing would deter him from identifying with Jesus Christ? Who was that? Peter. Peter. I mean, man, he, you cut, bring it on, man, I'm ready. And he cuts off a guy's ear and, and Jesus and his graciousness even heals the soldier um, and even tells Peter, listen, you're, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter probably thought and even said, no, no, how can that be? But sure enough, as Christ was taken away and Jesus, who, or Peter, who had been so bold, 
around the fire when asked, hey, are you, are you with that man? Three times, vehemently denied, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. But Peter wasn't the only one who was afraid. The other ten disciples, of course, Judas was out of the picture because he betrayed Jesus Christ. But the eleven remaining disciples, they were also fearful. And I want to draw your attention to a passage in John that gives us a little bit of insight. And I love how the, the Bible is transparent in that it doesn't hide some of these heroes of the faith, the disciples of Jesus Christ. It doesn't hide some of the embarrassing moments that they had spiritually. Look with me in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 21. These adult men, these men who had seen Jesus Christ perform some amazing miracles, calm the waters and, and, and uh, multiply the fish and the loaves and do all of these things, heal people. He, they had seen all these miracles, but yet these grown men had locked themselves into a room for fear of the Jews. See what it says in John 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, were for fear of the Jews. And then notice what happens next. Jesus came and stood among them. I want you to pause for a minute and think about that. Jesus came and stood among them. Thank God that Jesus didn't come down with a hammer and say, you know, you weaklings, how dare you? How could you lock the door? I mean, after all you've seen me do. But Jesus came and he, he stood among them and noticed the reaction of these 11 disciples who had seen so much already, had run for fear, but noticed how they reacted. When he had said this, or Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending. I, it's not I have sent or I will send, but I am sending you. We see in the end of Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission that Jesus says, I'm going to be with you. As I send you, I'll go with you. And of course, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He is always near. It wasn't until just a few weeks ago that every time I have been repelling in my life, there's always been someone at the bottom of the cliff or the big wall or whatever serving as a belayer. And a belayer is basically just holding the rope. And as the rope goes through the figure eight, the carabiner, and you, you're, you're there and you, you, you step off the mountain... And you have to give you know, faith in this harness that you have and the rope. And, and, the, and they say, okay, well, if anything happens, you, know, you can press the rope against your back and you're just going to stop. But you hear horror stories about girls that have long hair and the hair gets stuck in the carabiner. And then, and then what happens? You know, that they hang by their hair. or you know, What happens then? But that's why the blair is there. So the Blair's at the bottom, and as I have gone off cliffs many times at Red Cliff Bible Camp, and as there's mountains all around, as you sit back in the harness, as you begin to go down the mountain, you think, man, if my feet slip off this cliff, that's a long ways down. But as soon as I could slip, if that happened, the Blair just pulls on the rope that cinches the rope in the carabiner, and you stop wherever you're at. You can let go. You can just kind of dangle there. You can whoo-hoo, whatever you want to do. But as long as the Blair is near and pulls on that rope, you're good gives you time to reposition and get ready. But a few weeks ago, we went to Lake Point Station, and there's a lot of fun things that you can do at Lake Point Station. 
Uh, this isn't, I don't get paid by, by them to give this ad, but we found a Groupon, did a family night, and went, and they have about, I don't know, maybe 12 climbing walls as part of the activities that you can do at Lake Point Station. It's in Emerson, where the huge sports complex is. It's close to the Chick-fil-A there. But as we went in, we did these different activities, and then we all, as a family, we went into the climbing wall area and got harnessed up, and they said, you know, as you go up, and they give us this little video you watch, as you go up, you know, once you're done climbing the wall, then you just kind of you just kind of sit back, and, and it will help you to repel down the wall. Okay, well, simple enough. I've been repelling off cliffs. I mean, this is, should be easy. So I go up the first wall, and I go up pretty fast. And, you know, in my competitive nature, I'm looking around at my family and seeing, am I going up faster than they are? You know, so I'm trying to go up, and I get up to the top. There's no, there's no belayer down at the bottom. But, you know, I remember, well, it's a mechanical system, so all I have to do is just kind of sit back. I had a hard time letting go of the handholds because I didn't see anybody there to catch me or pull the rope. And Kim even found, saw what was happening. She says, David, just let go. And I'm like, what, Mommy? What do I do? <laughs> and it took me a few minutes. I was kind of like, I don't know if I want to let go. But I did. I had to just kind of jump back a little bit. And then the mechanical system you know, caught in, and it lowered me. It helped me to repel the rest of the way down to the bottom. Spiritually... In the uncertain moments and the moments where we think, man, I could fall, I could really mess up my life, know that Jesus is always near. He's ready. In fact, we see in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. On that same night... There's one of, the, one of the obstacles there, there's a bunch of pillars, and it starts out pretty low, and you're, you're kind of tied in, but you, you have to step up on this pillar, there's nothing else around, you can't hang on anything, and you, you go all the way up. The last pillar, I mean, it's probably at least the height of this, this drop ceiling here, at least. I mean, it's pretty high. So that last step up, it starts to shake you know, and you're trying to keep your balance, and this boy was doing it, and his dad was down on the floor, and he says, come on, son! And Kim looked at him and says, yeah, that's easy for you to say because you're not up there. <laughs> Jesus Christ has been every, in every temptation that we can face. Hebrews promises us he's faced that temptation yet without sin. And because of that, it says then, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Because Christ has faced every type of temptation that we face yet without sin, he is always near, so the invitation is that we would draw near to him. If we ever feel that we're far away from God, it's our fault, not his. He is faithful. He is always there. And it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That helps me to stand strong because I know that Jesus is near. But then lastly, we see because of Christ's peace, he is aware he is aware. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm very thankful that God does not give us the burden to try to figure out how every piece of our life and everything that we face fits in and makes sense. There's going to be many things in our lives that will not make sense this side of heaven. 
And yet sometimes in our human tendency, I know this is my tendency, I'm trying to figure it out, okay? God, why did you allow that to happen? Or why didn't you do this or do that? But God says, listen, just rest in me. Just just be still and know that I'm God. Just remember, as Isaiah said, that my ways are higher than your ways and my ways are way past finding out. You can't trace them, as Paul says. And know that my peace will surpass all understanding. So as I think back and I remind myself, man, Christ is my king. He, he is, we know the final victory. We know that he, that he gives the ultimate victory to us. And we have the promise that he's coming back. We have the very presence right now that, is, that he's with me. And those things then help me to have a peace that others may look on the outside and go, I, I don't understand that. Well, apart from Christ, I can't either. But because of Christ, he is aware and he can give us the peace that passes all understanding. How should you stand strong? You know, it's easy to say, yeah, stand strong, stand strong. Well, how? How do you stand strong as a Christian? In athletics, in football, it's kind of easy. Well, you got to be big. you got to do strength training. And the heavier way, you know, it's it's easier. I never played lineman in football. I know that's a big surprise to you, but they never put me, uh, you know, as on an offensive lineman. Because why? Because I got pushed over pretty easy. They said, David, here, run the ball. You better run fast. And I did because I was afraid. So I ran fast. But I wasn't a lineman because I could not stand my ground very well. I couldn't, you know, protect the quarterback. So we understand in athletics how you stand strong. When buildings like this are built, and and Matt Johnson's in construction, he understands when buildings are built, generally the more concrete and iron, iron that's thrown down into the ground helps what comes up out of the ground stand strong. And some of the engineers uh, that are studying to be engineers are going, yep, that's right, Pastor David. That's good, good general knowledge. But what about spiritually? How do you stand strong for God? Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This Again, we're going to uh, borrow from another letter that that Paul has written to the Corinthian church. He gives, in a sense, a, a stand strong 101 type summary in this passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and following. We're going to start out, and it says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, to be watchful. Be watchful. That's the first part of the verse. Be watchful. I learned to drive in Macon, Georgia. I learned, uh, I began to, to drive an old Grand Dam that we had in the church parking lot when everybody else had left, I would run to my dad and, or mom and I'd say, hey, can I have the keys? And I don't know what they were thinking, but they gave me the keys and they would let me drive around in the parking lot and to, to you know, thankfully for them and for me, I never hit a car or, or a kid or anything like that. But that's where I began to learn to drive. And then later when I got my very first vehicle that was mine, a, a Jeep Cherokee and stick, a manual, a stick shift, and learned to drive in that. But I was never as watchful as when I would drive in downtown Sao Paulo. Because in Sao Paulo, whether you're downtown or in the metro area of Sao Paulo, there was so much that you had to keep watch for and make sure. In fact, the buses knew that they dominated the road. And so as the bus would swing out across the double line and get into your lane, you moved. I I learned you don't play chicken with the Sao Paulo bus driver because they know with 27 meters long of metal in their bus, they're going to win every time. 
So as the bus came out, man, we would swerve over. And then the motorcycles would be going down the dotted line. That They felt like that was their lane. So, I mean, you, you better not get in their lane either. They'll kick your car or punch your window or whatever. So you're watching out for motorcycles. And then here comes a cow crossing the road. And there's a couple stray dogs. And then, oh, by the, by the way, a couple kids playing soccer in the street. And so you're watchful. You're always looking around. And sometimes I'd get home and I'd be like, I'm exhausted just from driving. Because I had to be, you had to be so watchful. I'll never forget some of the, the sights that we saw. In fact, one day as we headed to church, I saw a, a body under a, a bus that had died. You know, a person had died because he'd been run over by a bus. And, and to be run over is, I mean, or to be hit is unfortunately all too common. Because there's so many cars and so many things happening that we learned you have to be watchful. We taught our kids, you, you've got to know what's going on around you. I had a brother-in-law that was visiting with us uh, for several weeks. David, his name, uh, by the way, and is younger than, than Kim, and he came to visit. We were walking around downtown Sao Paulo, and we were about to cross the street, and he had actually started to step out of the street, and I glanced to the left just in time, and I pushed him back as a motorcycle whizzed right in front of us, if a split second later I hadn't caught him, David would have been injured very badly that day. And it was just a reminder. And I even said, David, I, told, I said, David, you got to watch out, man. You better look where you're going. And we, we, we learned that. As groups would come and visit, there was coming another thing that we had to watch out for. As we were downtown, and understand, you know, I think all of you that know me well know this. We loved our time in Brazil. There are many, many compassionate, loving Brazilians. Right, João? Amen? But there's also those that are ready to take advantage of you. So when you go downtown and you got a group of 10, 15, 20, sometimes 20 plus Sometimes what they call gringos, you know, the Americans, the cameras, the t-shirts, the hat, the sunglasses. It's like screaming, we're tourists, we're tourists, steal from me, steal from me. And so as the group would come, we would have a little, you know, conversation. Keep your, you know, keep your money hidden and don't flash money around. Try not to speak too loudly when you're out in public. You know, to go, hey, Johnny, what is, that's just like saying to everybody, look at me, I've got stuff. You know, so be careful. And so those who would go with me, and my family members would often kind of help me, I'd put some people up front, and I would kind of often stay in the back, and we would always be watching who's around the group. And sometimes I would even say, hey, hey, you need to kind of come in, stay close to the group, don't lag behind. And those that didn't often lost things. One guy lost $2,000, stole right stolen right out of his pocket. $2,000 cash. Why in the world he had $2,000 cash walking downtown Sao Paulo? But he was the leader of the group, and I couldn't say a whole lot because he'd been very helpful. And I, I just, I said, Barry? He said, yeah, I know. I know. It was very stupid. I'm like, well, yeah, it was. But you had to be watchful because if you weren't, you were going to be the one most likely picked out to be stolen from. Now, spiritually, we understand those things in the practical mindset, but spiritually, we so often forget that we're in the middle of a spiritual war. And we walk about not paying attention, not even, not even thinking, sometimes not even recognizing the spiritual temptations that bombard us every day. But yet, we see a challenge to be watchful. And in 1 Peter 5, 6-11, you'll see it on the screen as well, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, 
under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So that's a reminder that Christ is present. His peace is surpassing. But then it goes on. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. How? Firm in your faith. Stand strong in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, I love this part, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, that's the promise, who's called you to the eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen to be watchful. Lord, help me to remember that I am in a spiritual war. And there are temptations that will bombard me and my family and my church family every single day. Help me to be watchful for you. Secondly, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, be strong. Be strong. So 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Act like men and be strong. A couple ways that we can do this. One is to seek God's wisdom. To seek God's wisdom. James talks about the dangers of a double-minded man. And in James 1, 5 through 8, notice the description of someone who does not seek God's type of wisdom. This type of person, it gives the the idea that he's just going to be pushed back and forth like you're in the waves of an ocean. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. How often do we take advantage of that promise? I know it's hard for me, man. I I try to figure it out. I try to think, okay, you know, what's the strategy here? How can I? I've got to be reminded, God, you work so many in so many different ways. Give me your wisdom. Help me to know what you would have me to do. Help me to know what you would have our family to do. Help me, help me to know what you would have our church to emphasize and to pursue. God, I pray that you would help me to seek your wisdom. And then it goes on, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts, it, get this, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable unfirm, weak, pushed around in all his ways. So if you're not seeking God's wisdom and you're trying to figure out life yourself and navigating what you think is the best way, I'm going to guarantee you, you will be pushed around like a wave of the sea. James says it. The Bible and inspiration of God's word says that's exactly what will happen. Part of that process then, secondly, is to reject the world's wisdom. We need to seek God's wisdom and then in a negative way, reject the world's wisdom. Notice what happens to Demas, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He didn't, at that time in his life, he did not continue to seek God's wisdom. He wanted the world's wisdom and it was said to him, he's he's in love with this present world. He's gone away. We'll see in a few verses next Sunday, probably, we'll see that Yodia and Syntyche had wavered also. They hadn't lost their faith, 
But they had wavered in their faith and they were beginning to think kind of in their own mind and not the mind of Christ. But were challenged to, to stand strong, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And then the last part of 1 Corinthians 13, or this passage, 1 Corinthians 16, 14, says this. So 13, we've already read, but I'll read it again. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be, let all that you do be done in what? In love. So it's not, you know, just to be watchful. It's not just to be strong, but it's also be loving. And this is where it's kind of difficult for us to, to take practical life illustrations and, and put into our spiritual life. Most often when you're on a football field and you're, you're you know, line up as a lineman, uh, you're not thinking about, how can, I, how can I love this guy in front of me? You don't think about that. As you're building a building and you're pouring concrete and, and rebar you know, in that and trying to make it as strong as you can, you don't think, what would be the loving way to build this building? But spiritually, God says, you want to be strong? It's not about just having an abrasive nature. It's not about just you know, declaring truth. Yes, you should be firm. You should not waver from the conviction of the Holy Spirit and conviction of God's word. But in all that you do, be loving. In all that you do, be loving. And I fear, friends, that many times this is where we've gotten it wrong. We've had a lot of the right answers, and we, we stand and we shake God's word, and we say, yeah, we've got the answer, and the wicked. Yes, we need to call out sin, and we need to do it passionately. But at the same time, may our hearts break for the lost say man if it weren't for Christ I'd be doing the same thing or worse God help me to be loving help me to yes to be to be saddened and to be burdened and, and, and to call sin for what it is but at the same time say because of the love of Christ for you there is another path for you and God wants to redeem you and restore you and give you a purpose and may we not be known as just the people who scream and holler and get upset and all the nose and this, but may we be known as the people that stand for what we believe, but we do it also with a love that doesn't fail. It's not, a to, it's not this tolerance love that everything goes, but it is a love that reflects the very love of Jesus Christ that seeks the best for every individual, and that best is only found in a faithful walk with Jesus himself. That is the type of love we should show. They have to be displayed together to be strong, to be watchful, but be loving. We can't separate those things. Last question we'll answer this morning, Lord willing, is against who should you stand strong? Against who? Well, the first one's pretty obvious. The devil. And we may go, yeah, man. Amen, pastor. Stand against the devil. But we do need to be reminded. The devil is real. It's not something you just see in cartoons. It's not something you just see at Halloween. The devil's real. Ephesians 6.11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. He's smart. Very intelligent. Very cunning. The devil comes from the Greek word diabolos, which means slanderer. Satan comes from the Hebrew word, which means adversary. 
Another common term that's used for the devil and for Satan that I think as humans we can identify uh, and understand a little bit more quickly the danger. Another term that's often used is the serpent. You don't think it's not any, any surprise that um, you know serpents or, or snakes aren't considered to be man's best friend. You, some people are crazy enough to have snakes as pets, but most people don't. Most people don't really enjoy being around snakes a whole lot. I, for one, do not. And the little that I've been around snakes at different places, I've seen snakes here in Georgia, I've seen snakes in Brazil, and in every instance, they seem, they seem very, very cunning. To use a Bible word, they seem very crafty. They don't, you know, just go, hey, I'm over here, be careful. No, they're like hiding, and you gotta, you gotta be careful. Notice some of the descriptions we see in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now be reminded, Satan had already fallen. He had already rebelled against God. And God allowed Satan to then indwell you know, the, the actual physical creature of a serpent, of a snake. So Satan is doing the, the accusation here and the questioning, the doubting of God's, God's will. But then in 2 Corinthians eleven three. 3... But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And all the way at the end of the, book, end of the New Testament, Revelation 12 and verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Man, that makes me want to shout amen i'm glad to know that because he's king because christ is king satan will not rule as prince and power of the air of this world forever but don't forget that he is still actively deceiving the world in which we live and so he is one to be opposed but not only that We've got to understand, as we just saw in Revelation, he deceives the whole world, so we need to stand against Satan and the devil, the serpent, but we also need to stand against the worldly system. Notice what Ephesians 6, verse 13 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. So to stand against the schemes of the devil, but also to, to stand firm, to stand strong in the evil day. That gives the context of all of the worldly system that Satan has influenced and continues to influence. We were challenged, you know, two verses earlier to, to stand against the schemes of the devil, but the world, man, is, is so influenced by this deceiver, this slanderer, the accuser. It's for this reason that we've even recently gone into a study of how to respond to today's culture issues. How do we take a stand for God's word and some of the principles and truths that we see in Scripture? The world's been deceived to believe and even celebrate killing the unborn. The world's been deceived to think that they promote you know, women's rights and equality and fair practice and all these things for women, but yet many times it's the same system who wants to, to legalize Transgender men to go into girls' locker rooms and ladies' locker rooms and undress before them, that certainly doesn't seem to be treating women as they should be treated. And these are just some hot topics, and you can think about all many ways that the worldly system 
has been influenced by Satan. May God help us to stand firm against those things. Liberal New York Times just, just a couple days ago put out an article and, and openly recognized and says, yes, we, we recognize that in higher education there is an extreme bias towards the liberal agenda. The New York Times says, there, yes, this is, this is a fact. 60% or more of higher education professors and staff openly recognize that they follow the liberal agenda. And only 12% identify as those who would be conservative or to, to the right. This goes far beyond political views, folks. I'm not here this morning, and you know me well, know that I'm not here this morning to talk about one party or another. There's enough uh, corruption and sin in both parties that we need to stick with Christ. But I'll say that it's obvious that our educational institutions in general around the world are not helping us to, to stand strong in Christ. And I pray that as our kids are here at Northwest Classical Academy and you students at Kennesaw State University or Georgia Highlands or wherever you're at, that God would help you to be discerning and to be a light and a salt uh, where you're at and to stand firm for these truths when oftentimes they're going to be attacked, to stand against the worldly system. Now, these first two things, it's not really a big surprise. Yeah, we should stand strong against the devil. We should stand strong against the worldly system. But this last thing may be a little more difficult because this last uh, enemy is always with us. And this last enemy is one that we don't want to always recognize as an enemy. What is it? Well, it's our own sin nature. We must stand strong against our own sin nature. Ephesians 6, verse 14. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. So now the, the analogy goes to, to the body itself, to an individual. It says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Well, why? Well, because Jeremiah in the Old Testament says, man, your heart is, our hearts are spiritually wicked. Who can know it? Jesus said in Matthew 26 and verse 40, 41 uh, that your flesh is weak, in Romans 7, 21 through 25, um, you'll see it on the screen, but it says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law. Notice the phrase here, waging war. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then this is the victory phrase. Thanks be to God through who? Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm not strong enough to stand against my own sin nature. I'm not disciplined enough. I can't do enough, you know, gospel duties to make it happen. I have to understand that I am totally dependent on walking with God and with Jesus Christ day by day. And only through his power can I stand against my own sin nature. But we must stand strong against ourselves. Many times we're our own worst enemy. 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 5, we hear of Paul's talking about people who will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And Paul says, avoid 
such people. I'm going to tell you, that is a pretty accurate description of 2023, of the evil day in which we live. And I'm not saying, oh, doomsday, you know, woe is us. No, God has put us here, and I'm thankful that I'm alive right now. You have a special purpose, and we can experience God's great blessing and surpassing peace. Paul doesn't stop there, though, when he's talking to Timothy, and he goes on, notice in 2 Timothy 3, 16, and 17, of a primary way that we can stand against our own sin nature, we see in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you are not spending time in God's word, you're not going to be able to put on the, the belt of truth. You're not going to be able to put on the breastplate of righteousness. You will not stand strong if you're not spending time in God's word. It's as simple as that. And God says, yes, stand strong against Satan. Stand strong against the worldly system. But stand strong against your own sin nature. And do this by spending time in my word. By talking to me. By allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you and lead you step by step. One of the most dangerous systems of thought is not atheism, in my opinion. It's not agnosticism. It's not all the isms. But it's something that maybe is not heard quite so much. Have you ever heard of thinkianity? You ever heard of that? It's dangerous. You go, what? Come. It's the idea that, well, you know, I think that this is the best way or that way. Well, you know, I know God's word has these truths and says these things, but I think in our modern times that really sexual morality boils down to this or this. Well, I think in modern times that, that really, you know, what I say doesn't matter quite as much. I think in modern times that it doesn't matter so much what I allow in my brain or allow to come in and invite into my home. And so even as believers, so often we say, well, I think, and I think, but yet, what does God think? So we're followers of this, of this thinkianity. And oftentimes, we don't open God's word. And then when we are confronted with God's word, we explain it away. Well, but you know, that was... And, and they meant really... And well, I don't really think that's binding for us. And we kind of explain it away. Several years ago, we were still in Brazil, and we lived in a two-story house. We had a, a, a balcony up on the second story, and Michael, when he was pretty young, probably around five, he said, Dad, can I jump off the balcony? I'm like, no, son. He said, no, I think I can do it. He had convinced himself that he, you know, could, could jump off the balcony and he would be okay. Obviously, as a dad, I, I did not let him do that that day. If he had done it that day, it would have ended very poorly for Michael. But yet many of us, even as believers... We know to some extent what God's word says. We know what it says about standing strong, why we should stand strong, how to stand strong. But yet we convince, begin to convince ourselves to do some foolish things, thinking that, no, I think my way will work. Well, this last verse reminds us in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. 
I can assure you that if you do the same, if you try to convince yourself this, this way will work, I think it's not going to end well for you. That's guaranteed. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning as we close in prayer?